You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, I'm afraid there's no getting away from Brexit and its fallout. Dennis Staunton, our London editor, examines the entrails of the Tory leadership debate after the Eton boys, Cameron and Boris, go their separate roads to oblivion. Now Tories are to be led by a distinctly different class of leader, maybe from a council estate, maybe even a woman. And from Sweden's paper, Svenska Dagblad, we get an affectionate, more in sorrow than in anger, lament of reproach to the UK from journalist Elvis Nilsson, who despairs at the lack of self-awareness of its voters of the EU that she says they created in their own image. And our Berlin correspondent, Derek Scully, reflects on how Germany is responding to the Brexit prospect. First to London, where, as we speak, the Tory party is going through the agonising process of an extended leadership election. First, uh, between now and next week, in a series of ballots, the parliamentary party whittles down the contenders to two. Then the members of the party in the country uh, vote, and it concludes in September. Dennis Staunton, tell me about the candidates. The Eton boys have now moved aside, and we're now talking about a more middle-class leadership, a caring Tory leadership, or are they? Theresa May, start with her. Theresa May is the front runner. She's the Home Secretary and she's uh, been Home Secretary for longer than anybody uh, practically in the history of uh, of England has been, which is unusual because it's normally a kind of a graveyard for political careers. So she's a very tough uh, politician. She backed the Remain side in the referendum, but she wasn't really a very uh, enthusiastic backer of it insofar as she didn't take much part she made one speech during the course of the uh, campaign, and that was kind of it. So, uh, but nonetheless, she is the uh, you know she she is a Remain backer. She has the support of over a hundred MPs, so she's way ahead of all the rest of them. And she's presenting herself as a kind of a voice of uh, middle class. Uh, Middle England. She is certainly not anything like the Etonians. She's a vicar's daughter. She went to a grammar school, which became a comprehensive school. And she lives in uh, the home counties in a very, very uh, sort of typical kind of uh, middle class uh, English conservative environment. And so, uh, so she's presenting herself as being uh, somebody who's very competent, somebody who's experienced, and somebody who can be tough in the negotiations. Now, she has said, despite uh, the fact that she supported Remain, she said Brexit means Brexit. She said there can be no question of compromising on the free movement of people. In other words, that the free movement of people from the European Union into Britain has to stop as part of uh, the business of withdrawing from the European Union. And uh, and so that's, uh, so, but she's mainly presenting herself as the experienced, competent, tough, uh, serious person in the race. She is sort of the pragmatic candidate in a way. But behind that, there is a bit of an ideologue. I mean, she is, she's a pretty uh, stern, conservative politician, uh, law and order and, and traditional values and things like that. Absolutely. She comes from uh, the authoritarian wing of the Conservative Party or the law and order wing of the party in that sense, insofar as if you look at her voting record and all kinds of things, like say something like uh, you know, gay rights, uh, she would have been on the conservative side of that, on the, uh, on the illiberal side of that all the way along. Uh, today, uh, once again, she kind of burnished her uh, security credentials by saying that she would have a vote on renewal 
renewing the Trident nuclear deterrent straight away and that all four submarines, which are enormously expensive to keep going, uh, that they should all be kept uh, in service, uh, you know, no matter what the cost. And so she's presenting herself very much, and she is very much a kind of a tough law and order uh, person on that wing of the Conservative Party. Having said that, she has kind of suggested as something of a softening of uh, economic policy. And that's something which uh, George Osborne, the Chancellor, seemed to kind of fall into line with earlier this week when he said that he would abandon his target of balancing the budget by 2020. And she's been essentially saying that, you know, the government must do whatever it has to do to prime the pump to make sure that uh, the economic uh, damage from Brexit uh, is not too severe, or at least that government does what it can to uh, to deal with that. Now we turn to Michael Gove, the the author of House of Cards, the t- riveting TV series. Uh, Michael Dobbs has complained that his TV series was not intended to be seen as an instruction manual. Uh, I think he was talking about Gove very specifically. Uh, he uh, could give classes in treachery. Uh, as a real ideological hardliner who upset teachers in education with very strong anti-peace process views. Yes, uh, he's, uh, you know, Michael Gove is the closest thing you get in English politics to uh, an American neoconservative. Uh, he's been from the very beginning of that era in uh, uh, in Western politics. He's been uh, a backer of a very very hardline approach in terms of uh, the sort of the so-called uh, global war on terror. He's been uh, uh, you know he's had a kind of a, an ethnocentric uh, approach sometimes to foreign policy in uh, condemning uh, you know uh, what you know Islamist uh, ideas ideologies and and kind of going quite far in terms of uh, of his identification of uh, radical islam as being the key threat to the west uh, and he did as you say he uh, was a he was an opponent of the peace process in northern ireland and to the year 2000 he wrote uh, a really quite extraordinary pamphlet denouncing the um, the good friday agreement uh, that was signed 2 years earlier as being something equivalent to the appeasement of the nazis uh, by Chamberlain. And so he's uh, he's very much a hardliner in that respect. On the other hand, he is uh, somebody who is known throughout Westminster as a remarkably charming, courteous person. Uh, and in fact, his courtesy is the first thing people uh, tend to, talk, to mention about him. He's a former journalist. And, uh, and, like, like and, Boris, and he's, But he suddenly emerged in the last few days as being this multiple assassin. And so, first of all, he, uh, you know, he disappointed his friend uh, David Cameron by backing the Leave campaign when David Cameron had hoped that his friendship uh, might trump his uh, ideology in this regard. And then uh, he trumped up being a Boris very Johnson. appropriate word. Yes, and then he teamed up the, uh, he, uh, he teamed up the, uh, with uh, Boris Johnson in the Leave campaign. And uh, as soon as Leave, uh, as the the Brexit uh, side won the referendum, uh, Michael Gove said he was uh, dead keen on backing Boris Johnson. He became his campaign manager uh, for the leadership. And then with two hours to go, uh, 
before uh, Boris Johnson was about to announce his candidacy and with three hours to go before the nominations closed, uh, suddenly and with no warning whatsoever, Michael Gove said he was no longer backing uh, Boris, uh, but he was actually running himself. And this, even by the standards of the Palace of Westminster, was kind of uh, was a, a level of treachery, which was really quite shocking for people. And so I think that a lot of Conservative MPs have recoiled at the uh, at the depth uh, or the harshness of the ruthlessness that uh, Michael Gove has displayed, and he has really found it very difficult to recover from that and to uh, and and to present himself as being the best standard bearer of those who uh, campaigned for Brexit in the leadership election. So he's now uh, appears to be losing ground to the other uh, main Brexit here, and that is Andrea Leadsom who is an energy minister, and she's never been a cabinet minister, but she's a junior minister. She spent a lot of her time in the city. And she uh, was described to me uh, last night by uh, one conservative as being a kind of a pound shop, Mrs. Thatcher. And uh, so she's kind of a a cheap knockoff, uh, maybe, uh, of her. She... um, is certainly presenting herself as the hardline Brexiteer. She, what she's saying is, I won't delay. I will uh, make sure that uh, we leave and that we leave uh, properly and fully and quickly. And uh, she, at the same time, she's presenting herself as being a kind of a compassionate conservative uh, in terms of uh, of the uh, of the economic policies. But she's got a couple of problems. One is that uh, there are a few questions hanging around her. One to do with her tax affairs. She's been a bit shifty about uh, when she's going to release her tax returns. And uh, what she says is that if she finds herself in the final two candidates that uh, are sent by the MPs to the party in general to be chosen, uh, to be chosen uh, between to be, for the uh, for the leadership that she will then publish her tax returns and uh, because she's had a kind of a, a complicated financial history there's some question as to whether there's something a bit fishy about that and then the other one is uh, about the extent to which she's been receiving support either financial or political from leave.eu which was the uh, the vehicle for uh, Uh, UKIP and uh, its main bankroller, Aaron Banks, during the Leave campaign. They've certainly been uh, expressing support for her. But again, she hasn't given... uh, you know, entirely satisfactory answers to whether she's really in receipt of uh, more substantial support from them. And that, I think, could also uh, be a problem for her. And, and like May, she wears her Christian faith on her sleeve. Much more so, in fact, because she's, uh, I mean, you know, uh, uh, Theresa May is a vicar's daughter, but uh, she would present herself as being a, a fairly mainstream and moderate and easygoing Anglican, whereas, uh, you know, Andrea Leadsom does wear her uh, Christian faith much more, uh, much more apparently on her sleeve. Now, crucially, as a sort of form of proxy, the election has become a, uh, a means of defining the negotiating mandate that, that the British will um, adopt in in their relations in relation to the negotiations with the with, with the EU, um, and it does appear as if room for manoeuvre is is narrowing significantly, particularly on the idea of of adopting what's called the Norway model, which would involve being part of the single market, but conceding um, free movement of of, of labour. That does looks to be less and less likely now with all the candidates sort of rejecting um, free movement of labour. 
Yes, that's right. I think what has happened over the last week is that what you've seen is, first of all, various illusions have uh, you know, been swept away very quickly. One is this idea that somehow you're going to have either a second referendum to reverse the vote that happened uh, two weeks ago, or that you're going to, um, you know, or just the thing is never going to happen somehow, you know, and that uh, they'll pull back at, at the last minute. And then there was this idea that actually maybe what, uh, you know, if you got, say, somebody like Boris Johnson as prime minister, somebody who had backed the Leave campaign, but nonetheless was fairly ideologically flexible, that he might come back with some kind of deal which was, as you say, similar to what Norway has, so that it's part of the single market. Uh, and uh, but, but as a quid pro quo, it has to pay into the European Union budget. And also you've got to have free movement of people. And, uh, and what has really become clear in the course of the last week is that all of the Conservative candidates are rejecting any compromise on free movement of people. Mrs May has held up some... Uh, sort of, or held open a kind of a tiny chink of light on that one where she says that free movement of people can't continue as it currently is. The rest of them are basically saying it's off the table, it's over. And if we have to choose between being part of the single market and free movement, then we're choosing to get rid of free movement and we'll take our chances outside the single market. Uh, what has made the thing more difficult still from the point of view of the negotiating mandate is that uh, the Labour Party has started to move into the same territory. So you know, the shadow chancellor, John McDonnell, also saying that it was time, uh, you know, that free movement was, uh, you know, was over. And then you've got uh, a number of, you know, among the candidates to challenge uh, Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party is uh, a guy called Owen Smith, who has for a long time been uh, somebody who, uh, in the weasel words of a lot of people here, uh, felt that we ought to respect the legitimate concerns that people have about and and in his case, he meant the cultural concerns as well as the economic concerns. And he, in the last few days, has been saying that there's a progressive case to be made against the free movement of people. So you could find that you have both of the main parties opposing uh, the, uh, you know, the maintenance of free movement of people from the European Union. And that then would really shut off any possibility of compromise. So I think you're right that the, that the, the domestic political process, and particularly this leadership contest, is likely to to force the negotiators into a corner where they've got very little room for manoeuvre uh, in terms of uh, of finding a relationship with the European Union, which is as close as possible, which is obviously what, say, Ireland would prefer. Thank you very much, Dennis. You're listening to The Irish Times. Now to Stockholm and Elvis Nielsen. Reaction there of ordinary people was one of, of shock and bewilderment. Um, do they understand why the Brits did this? No, not really. Um, they, the Swedes share some of the EU scepticism that you find in, in uh, UK, but not to that point, I must say. So, no, they don't really understand it. Now, you wrote what, in effect, was a letter of reproach to UK voters in The Observer. And the main thesis is that much of the rationale for Brexit... Uh, relates to issues like the single market, whose form uh, was championed by the UK. Uh, you said that the single market, for heaven's sake, uh, the EU's largest and most formidably lucrative business venture, was very much down to you, uh, a project by Margaret Thatcher. Yes, I was being a bit kind to the UK because they were in no way alone on that, but they very much championed it, and, and she helped push it through. I think the French balked at the idea to start with. 
So the single market, yes, that was very much a British project, as was, by the way, free movement of people. And most certainly free movement of Eastern Europeans. That was a British idea very much. Yeah, the biggest project, certainly when I was reporting uh, uh, Europe um, in, in Brussels, was the whole enlargement process. And there, was a, there were two camps in, in, uh, in Europe between those who wanted to widen and those who wanted to deepen. And the British were very much in favour of, of widening and bringing more countries in. Uh, and and I see you, you say that in the end, all, all agreed to do the enlargement your way, except for the instant freedom of movement for all. The rest of the U European Union wanted to be able to restrain certain Eastern Europeans for another seven years. Most of us did. You kept your true word and, and we did not. <laughs> yes, because, uh, as I said, there was only three countries... Uh, who, who chose to actually honour the free movement for the new arrivals the, from Eastern Europe. And that was UK, that was Ireland, I believe, and that was Sweden. And uh, so the, the Brits basically stuck to their word. They wanted free movement and they accepted it when it came. And uh, now it seems it's all EU's fault. And this was very much the, the, the rationale behind their approach to the whole European Union at that time. Yes, it was. And, and of course, uh, in Brussels, we suspected them for actually wanting to water out the whole idea of, of the EU. And that was the reason for, for enlarging it so much and so quickly. Because, yeah, as you probably remember, many countries hesitated letting them in so soon. You know, some felt they weren't mature enough, they couldn't handle the uh, live up to the EU rules, etc. But the Brits were in a hurry. They wanted it to happen quickly, and it did. Now, part of the reason uh, that, that Swedes and, and indeed many Europeans are bewildered by, what, that by the decision taken by the UK is that they believe they have a special relationship with the UK, much as indeed uh, the, the Irish do. You, you said in your piece that my people, the Swedes, feel that there is a completeness understanding between us, that the Danish, and for that matter, the Norwegians feel the same. Ask the Germans who they feel closest to and they will point uh, to you. And the Dutch, for their part, basically believe they are, they are part British. They're very good, aren't they? <laughs> they're very, very good, the Brits. They're very charming, they're very convincing. And, and they actually make fe people feel relaxed and at home, and, and uh, they're very good at persuasion. And uh, I, for one, could, could uh, point to a number of things where Sweden and, and the UK does not have the same idea of things. For example, the, uh, the uh, workers' rights. But it, it's really a strong, strongly held belief in Sweden that Sweden and UK is always, you know, marching hand in hand and thinking alike. Uh, that, that's, that's the concept for some reason. And, and to some extent, presumably, Sweden's membership was actually uh, predicated by the fact that, that, that the UK was there, that, that, that yes. it would have been yes, far less likely. Absolutely, just as Denmark and, and a few other countries. So I think, I don't know, I think the Swedes don't really believe there's going to be a, a Brexit. That it's sort of hoping that something will happen to change it. You know, somebody will come up with some brilliant idea to, to, to stop it before it actually takes place. And what what about the political effect in in uh, in uh, Sweden? Uh, the attitude of the government to future EU integration has that is that likely to change to to the euro? 
And and what about the gain, gains? Are they likely to be gains for the, the Sweden Democrats? That's funny because um, we all thought before when we, you know, when we discussed this Brexit referendum that the Sweden Democrats would uh, gain from it because they would like Sweden to uh, to leave the EU. They want a free market area. But it hasn't. And, and uh, we also thought that the government would toy with the idea of make, maybe making an exit along with the Brits, should it happen. And it's quite the opposite. The government has come out and said, we're very sorry about the Brits leaving, but uh, now the 27 of us have to stick together. We have to come up with a common plan. We have to do things together. So, so it's really quite the opposite what we thought just you know, a week, 10 days ago. So if anything, an impetus towards greater integration. Yes. And uh, obviously watching what happens in, in the UK, you know, over the last week or so, you know, makes that feeling even stronger. Nobody at this point would, would like to follow the Brits into Brexit. It's really, really scary. Thank you very much, Elvis. Thanks for listening to the programme. Remember, if you like this podcast and want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. And so to Berlin and our correspondent Derek Scally. There, there was a degree of shock among ordinary people and disappointment. Uh, can, can you describe that, Derek? Yes, indeed. I mean, Germany is a remarkably Anglophile country and the further north you go in Germany, particularly around Hamburg, I mean, it's like a it's like a shire of, of Britain. They're mad for British television and British fashion and British food. It's a lot of an unrequited love affair since since uh, the 1950s. So um, they really have felt an emotional connection to Britain in the wider sense. And in the in the EU, obviously, in a political strategic sense, they felt that Britain was a terrible aggravation. Um, but on the other hand, it, it was more useful to have around than not, particularly at budget time when they're dealing with France and Italy and other people who they believe prefer to spend money than earn it. And um, so the shock uh, in the wider population was huge. Um, and I think in the Berlin corridors of Paris, some of Merkel's people I talked to, they were just inconsolable would be the word to describe it, because not only is it an insecure time for everybody. They believe they've lost a soulmate when it comes to sort of knocking heads together and getting real world deals done that sort of reflect globalization and the challenges ahead as opposed to an emotional notion of uh, Europe of the past. And did you get a sense that anybody saw this coming or was it a, was it a shock? No, there really wasn't. I mean, there was definitely a sense that uh, the British are smart people, they're pragmatists, and at the end of the day, self-interest would sort of prevail a bit like in the Scottish referendum, that you know, people had their say, people shook their fist at Europe uh, the way the Scots shook their fist at London, but in the end, the, the Scots decided the way they did, so they were hoping for a similar the same here, but as soon as people woke up uh, early uh, six o'clock in the morning, they saw this, everyone was just devastated. You've spoken a bit about this. I mean, part of Germany's response is strategic. Berlin doesn't really want to, the EU to become to be seen as, as, as a German-led project. And you've written a bit about Germany's talent for tinier European diplomacy. What, what do you mean by that? Well, it's just, I think, as I think we're in small countries, we're very aware of how um, 
how to best get on in the world. And I think we sometimes there's a feeling that in larger countries, they don't need to be as uh, sensitive to how they're perceived. And one of the first things Germany did after this referendum was the German foreign minister called together a closed door meeting of the founding EU, the six EU founding members for a powwow about what to do. And they put out a statement and um, said they sort of called for unity in the EU while excluding all of the other members. So that isn't necessarily the best signal you want to be sending. And this goes back even last year when Angela Merkel was calling for unity in the EU on the migration crisis, and yet she was calling, she was taking her own unilateral decisions. So there've been there's been several of these um, faux pas, and when you put this to the people here, that if you're actually trying to get everyone on board and you're calling for everyone else to stop, you know, acting sort of freestyling their way through the headlines, maybe they should actually be a bit more controlled themselves, and you just get blank stares. So um, the notion that Germany can very easily irritate its neighbours. They say they're aware of it, but they continually put their foot in it. Well, of course, one of the things that they are most aware of is talk of the war, which we we don't want to mention. But uh, Steinmeier's meeting was interesting because it's not the first time that the original member states have got together. But there was underlying this sense of perhaps uh, a privileged position of the founding members that they had something particular to say and they had a right to to to, to be heard if you like more loudly than others Exactly. It was kind of like a rock band getting back together and none of the sort of the replacement drummers were invited. Um, this was, uh, they, they said that, you know, these are the true believers and that they, they, they honestly believe in um, uh, the core European project and European integration and nothing must be allowed to interfere with that. It also was significant that um, Mr. Steinmeier is a social democrat and his opposite number in Paris is also a social democrat. So they were anxious to get out of the get out of the starting gate quick with their own plans for sort of a more humane Europe, a less austerity driven Europe. Uh, they put out plans for, you know, we need to tackle youth unemployment. We need to tackle security. All these things that we've heard before. Um, but they were claiming they were new and they were claiming that although neither of them um, seemed to have much influence in the greater scheme of things that sort of the centre right in Europe still seems to be dominating daily affairs. They seem to insist that they have a say and they will turn these things to their advantage with, of course, with Martin Schulz, the president of the European Parliament, who's a German, a German uh, social democrat as well. So they, it seems to be almost about optics as well, getting their spoke in before the summit started, because obviously at the summit then it was Chancellor Merkel and her centre right allies around Europe who um, had a lot to say there. So it seems to be a lot of jostling while calling on other people not to play European political games. So do as I say, not as I do. Now, you're talking about Chancellor Merkel and, and what I'm interested in really is is what is your sense of her approach to the negotiations that will take place uh, about the British relationship with the EU in the future? She has some sympathy, uh, we understand, with the UK on, on the free movement of labour issue. But after the summit, she was very adamant that, that there wouldn't be any movement there. Indeed, she started soft. She started conciliatory. Um, she sort of said, let's not fall out over, you know, a few weeks about when or not when or when we can expect a timetable from the British. But as the days went by, particularly coming up to the summit and then during and after the summit, she was quite tough. She said, um, I'm not doing anything until I get the, the divorce papers on my table. Um, a certain amount of... of, of uh, of megaphone diplomacy going on there. Um, but there's no sign that she's interested in any technical talks. Um, she's quite happy to head off into the summer. Um, summer holidays in Germany are sacred. And uh, she will just wait and see how things pan out with uh, the new Tory leader and then whatever signals they can expect. Um, she has to appear slightly tough, but she can't appear to be too tough. So it's it's 
at the moment it's posturing. She's never a woman for quick decisions. She won't paint. She'll be the last person to paint herself into a corner. She's seen what happened when David Cameron did that. Martin Schultz did the same. He said, we need an exit. We need divorce papers last Tuesday. Tuesday came and went. Nothing happened. So America will buy it her time. She'll see what moves everyone else makes. Makes, and then she'll make her own move. And until then, she's sort of sending out, uh, she's sending up test balloons, sending out trusted deputies, um, her chief of staff and finance minister Wolfgang Schäuble, just to uh, see uh, whether what goes down best uh, with German voters, a tough line, a conciliatory line or no line. And how is the whole Brexit uh, debate playing into the German electoral timetable and her, her own future? Well, basically, she has less than a year to get some sort of shape on this because um, by this time next year, Germany will firmly be in uh, the electoral cycle. Um, we have some smaller state elections later this year, but in I believe it's in May we have Nordrhein-Westfalia, which is a very big, one of the most populous state in Germany, home to one in five people. And Germany's anyone who's watched German or European politics knows that uh, German leaders tend not to want to do anything to rock the boat in the EU when uh, the Nordrhein-Westfalia elections are coming up. And then we've got the federal elections coming up in September. So basically, she's got less than a year of political time left. And we're already starting to see um, some jostling with her Social Democrat Grand Coalition partners here in Berlin. And so the clock is ticking. We've got, you know, it's T minus 12 months and um, probably even less than that. Uh, we'll be expecting she'll want some sort of shape to start coming on things in September. September, October. I don't think there'll be any political appetite here for uh, giving the British any more time than that, because, of course, we're still talking about talks about talks. The actual talks to leave the EU will be some other time. But in terms of a time frame of what the British envision, um, the Germans, I'd say, would be quite happy to wait for the summer holidays to pass. But come mid and September, they'll want they'll want uh, black and white details. But if we're talking about um, the British, the Brexit vote, uh, for example, in France, having the effect of, of strengthening Marine Le Pen, is there any similar uh, repercussion likely in Germany, alternative for Deutschland? Oh, indeed. I mean, the, the I mean, almost two thirds of Germans don't want any more uh, transfers of power to uh, the European Union. Of course, it depends how you ask the question, but that's the poll she's dealing with. That has been a central platform of the AFD, as you mentioned. A sort of a, a sister party of Farage's UKIP, and she won't be anxious to give them anything more. But at the moment, she really there isn't a sense that they can actually do anything. Um, she'll have Taoiseach and Kenny in town in a week's time. They'll be consulting on that, and um, give uh, the Taoiseach a chance to put Ireland's special concerns, particularly about Northern Ireland, to her. Northern Ireland really did not feature in this uh, in this referendum debate in uh, Germany, but she will be keeping and on her own uh, right flank the alternative for Deutschland have been peeling away votes they're up in double digits up in double digits and they'll be hoping to repeat that at next year's uh, federal elections which of course makes coalition arithmetic then very complicated for Merkel if she wants to go for another term Indeed uh, there's one other voice that, that, that has been coming out in the last uh, couple of days on, on, on uh, the aftermath of Brexit and particularly in, in, in relation to the ideas of further integration as a response to uh, the European crisis. Uh, and Wolfgang Schauble, who's um, a real old war horse of European uh, integration politics, he's been talking about ideas that he first put forward in 1994, I gather, more uh, a two-speed mo model of, of, of Europe. How are they going down? Um, it's going down 
like a Led Zeppelin. Um, many people are saying, yes, that's a good idea, but it was a good idea in 1994 and um, it was a good idea in 2004 and it just never seems to happen. What he's saying is that the European institutions, as they work at the moment, it just takes too long. It's sort of a, it moves from one institution in Brussels to the next, to the next, and two years later, we may have a deal or we may not. And He's saying, well, look what we did in the euro crisis. In the euro crisis, um, a lot of what they needed to do to steady the single currency had to happen outside the European institutions because there was no legal basis for them in the European treaties. And he said that worked quite well. Um, we managed to knock through things very quickly. Uh, time was of the essence to calm financial markets and the single currency. Why don't we repeat that? Why don't we take concrete issues similar to what the social democrats are proposing things like youth unemployment things like security why don't we find out who's willing to put together a common european policy on this but not an eu policy and once we've proven that this works other people are very happy to come on board and perhaps that will then eventually feed into european uh, eu policy inside the european institutions so setting up sort of or continuing to occupy the house that they built parallel to the EU in Brussels during the euro crisis, keep that show on the road and speed things up. Now, many people say, that's a great idea, let's do it. Many other people say, well, we're not quite sure if we trust Germany because the European Commission sort of, uh, it's, it's not very popular at the moment, but it sort of functions as a, it's sort of a, as a, as a balancing act in Europe between the larger and the small countries. And Ireland has always liked having the European Commission there in negotiations. If we sort of set up a separate operation parallel to the EU to knock things through and hopefully win back support of European voters, there's a danger. Many people fear that Berlin will dominate uh, this this affair. So it hasn't really happened in the past, apart from the euro crisis. Whether or not people trust Berlin to push this forward in the future is another matter entirely. Thank you, Derek. Thanks to Dennis Staunton, Elvis Nielsen and Derek Scally and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. 